Turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, that's the last book in the New Old Testament, first book before the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. It's the last prophecy that we read before Jesus is born. There's about 400 years between those two things. So the last prophet spoke, there's about 400 years of no prophets, no prophecies, and then Jesus was born. So if you were living in Jesus' time and you were reading the Bible, your Bible would end at Malachi. And all the New Testament hadn't happened yet. So when we read Malachi, we're basically reading the foundation and the setup for Jesus. What had God prepared for Jesus to arrive? What did he want people to know before they got to Jesus? So when we study it, it helps us to sort of look at Jesus in a new way so that we would be prepared. It also helps us understand it in a, in a more full way than what they did. So in the beginning of Malachi, what we did about two weeks ago, first five verses, talks about God's love. God loves his people. And in an interesting counterintuitive way, he says, here's how I love you. Here's how I, you know I love you because I don't destroy you. I don't judge you. If I judged you and I gave you what you deserved, that wouldn't be love. That would be judgment. So he says to Israel, I haven't judged you, so you know I love you. And so we can see how God has not destroyed us, so we can see his love for us. And it shows the greatness of God, which is what this passage is about. This passage is going to answer the question, what does God expect from his people? What does God expect? What does he want from us? Which requires us to know a few things. Who is God? If you don't know who God is, you don't care what he wants. So you have to know who God is. And you have to know who you are. And you compare those two things and you're going to find something. You're going to find a problem, aren't you? When you know how great God is, then you know who you are. And it's not great. Which creates a tension, a problem. And then we see the answer. And the answer is Christ. He solves the problem for us. He gives us the solution, but that's not the end of it. There's a fourth and final thing that's required from us, and that's a response. So if you're ever presenting the gospel or trying to explain Christianity to someone, this is a four-step process. Who God is, who we are, who Christ is, and what God expects from us, a response. So God, man, Christ, response. That's what we're going to look at in this passage. So first of all, let's look at God's greatness. So we're going to start in verse 6 and read down to the end of the chapter in verse 14. And God is speaking through the prophet to his people. And God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, In what way have we despised your name? You have offered defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? says the Lord of hosts. 
Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, who has in his flock a male, and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For am I a great king, says the Lord of hosts? And my name is to be feared among the nations. Pretty powerful passage, isn't it? You don't really want God talking to you this way, do you? He's not happy. The underlying principle behind this passage is that God gets to talk this way. That it's his right. And he lays it out through the passage. He says, here's who I am. And because this is who I am, this is how you should respond. So who is God in this passage? See, if you don't know who God is, you cannot know anything else. That's what we mean when God is holy. God is great. God is above all. God is before all. It's a starting point. If you don't know God, if you don't know who God is, if you don't understand God, how can you respond? How can you go on? How can you understand God's creation? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. So he says, here's who I am. See, God doesn't leave it up to us. He doesn't say, you figure it out. Wouldn't that be terrible if he did? Here's what it would look like. Look at every single other religion in the world. That's man trying to tell God who he is. Every single other religion is man doing his very best to figure out who God is. Sometimes they get a little bit right. Sometimes they get a lot of bit wrong. But the whole idea of multiple why there's so many religions because there's so many people trying to figure out who God is. We know the true God, not because we figured it out, but because he told us. That's important for Christians to understand. We're not special. We're not better. We're not smarter. We just read what God said. So what does he say? He says, I am above you. I'm like a father. When you see a father and a child, who do you talk to? Who's, the, who's in charge? Father is. It says, servant is master. Who's getting paid by who? Who sets the orders? Who do you go to for directions? He says, you honor these people, naturally. He goes, but I'm a father. Where's my honor? I'm a master. Where's my reverence? Until we see God as superior to all other things, we, we have nothing. If God is just another thing in our world, he'll be treated the same way. Whatever we give lip service to until we internalize and say, God is above us. Therefore, to understand anything below God is to first understand God. This applies to every area of life. Business, science, education, raising children, church, everything falls under God. That's why he says at the end of the passage, for I am a great king. When you see great king, 
there's only one conclusion. You're a subject. And what do subjects do? They live their life in reference to the king. But if you don't think God's a king, you won't live your life in reference to him. So God is not just above us in sort of this sort of hierarchy. He just happened to land up there. He's there because of who he is. Now, there's a word here that got repeated. I don't know if you noticed it. It's repeated seven times in this passage. Anytime you find a word that gets repeated seven times in 14 verses, it's kind of the point of the passage. It says, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, verse 16. Verse 8, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 10, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 11, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, the Lord of hosts. Okay, what's this word mean? It's obviously important. It's obviously the foundation for everything that's being said. God is saying, I'm saying this, and here's why you should listen, because of who said it. It doesn't say God. Like We usually refer to God as God, don't we? But here he's referring to as the Lord of hosts. Now, the word Lord there, if you look at your Bible, it's all in caps. Any of you know this? Because it's not actually a translation. If we were, there really is no translation for it, but if we were to transliterate it and sort of say the Hebrew words in our language, it would be something like Yahweh or Jehovah. You ever heard those words? So when you see Lord in all caps, that means Yahweh or Jehovah. And a rough translation would be sort of like I am that I am. Pretty broad, isn't it? How do you define God? He is. You can't put limits on it. You can't say he is this. Well, that, that limits him. So he is love, but there's more to him than love. So he is. That's the best name. But he's the Lord of hosts. Now, the word host there means what you think. Not like a host. Well, maybe you think of a host at a party. No. Like a lot of people. Could be translated armies. What's God saying here? He says, here's why you should listen to me, because I've got a lot of things on my side. I'm in charge of a lot of things. Now, it's an understatement, isn't it? The Lord of hosts, the pre-existing, always eternally existing creator, what does he have at his, at his power? How many hosts does he have? So he's saying, you should listen to me because of who I am, and I'm not just your father, I'm the Lord of hosts. I wield power in a way that you can't understand. I reign with power over creation. I have at my command all sorts of things. Remember when Jesus said, you think you have power over me? He goes, but there's 10,000 angels standing by that I could call on right now. He didn't, but he could have. And it's a fool who thinks that because God doesn't judge, he can't judge. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, why would he say that? I don't see anything happening. What this passage is saying is that's because God is merciful, not because he can't. Don't, God, don't judge God's kindness for weakness. That's the ultimate mistake you can make. Because God doesn't give you what you deserve, that he won't give you what you deserve or that he can't. And so this passage is sent to us to tell us the opposite. He is the Lord, the creator the eternal God who has all power. Now will you listen? Now will you listen to he who has all power? Because he's speaking to you. 
I'm going to read three passages of three different men who actually encountered God. See, we're encountering God in sort of a veiled way, aren't we? We're reading about God. God is speaking to us, but we're not seeing God with our eyes. And so that leads us to sort of have a dismissive view of it. If I were to explain the Rockies to you, you'd be like, oh, that sounds interesting. But if you were to see the Rockies, you're like, oh, I mean, I knew it, but it was different. So here's three people, two from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, who saw the glory of God. They saw the Lord of hosts. And and Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision. It says, a voice came from above the expanse over their heads. When they stopped, they lowered their wings. Something like a throne with the appearance of gems was above the expanse over their heads. On the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. From what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber with what looked like fire enclosing it all around. From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant, brilliant light all around him was like a, that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down. Isaiah, in the year the king Uzzah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The book of Revelation, John the Apostle. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead. You see what's happening? If you saw God, you would fall on your face. When these men saw a little bit of the glory of God, their reaction in every case was overwhelmed worship. What's what's changed? You see, living by faith means believing it as if we saw it. So when God says, I am the Lord of hosts, the response should be worship. Awe. And the only reason we don't worship God is because we don't believe what we read. Because if we believed it, we would have the same response as if we saw it. But because of our limitations, because of our sin, we believe some of it. We believe a little bit of it. We sort of see God as through a glass darkly, and we're like, we kind of see it. But our response shows us how much we believe it. When they saw God, their response showed they believed God. So that's the first thing, how great is God? But then what's man's response? And it shows a problem with man, doesn't it? Man's sin. If God is so, you notice that the descriptions were not just sort of power, they're also beauty. 
rainbows, jewels, fire, bronze, snow? What's the proper response to beauty? Awe. What's the proper response to power? Reverence. But look at their response. You say, in what way have we despised your name? What's the big deal? God shows up and says, you've done something wrong. And their response is like, eh, where? Okay, I mean, show us exactly what you mean by this. Like, prove to us that you're right. Vindicate yourself, God, because we don't believe you. Prove that you exist, God. If you ever hear someone say, well, I need God to, you know, if God showed up and told me, then I'd believe. This is what they're saying. In what way have we despised your name? God says you offered defiled food. But, you, but they say, in what way have we defiled your food? God, you're taking this too seriously. How can you respond to God that way? You don't believe God. You don't believe God is the Lord of hosts. You believe God is like a grandfather in the sky, a nice grandfather, who just like, hey, you didn't finish your food. Oh, Grandpa, did, didn't I, though? Whenever you hear the world talk about the man up in the sky, that's a sign they don't really believe in God. Sort of like you always see pictures of God, like kind of an old man with a long beard. No. That's saying you don't know who God is. So when someone says to you, I don't believe in God, you should respond, tell me what you think God is, because I don't know if I believe in that God either. I don't believe in a God that just sits up in heaven and just sort of watches what people do. I don't believe that either. I don't believe in that God. I don't believe in a God that just sort of like mean to everybody and just sort of telling everybody what to do. Me neither. You read who God is and you respond to it, and your response shows how much you believe. They disrespected God. They said, what's the big deal? We're not doing anything wrong. God, you made a mistake. You got the wrong people. You got the wrong number. You called us, but you, you didn't mean to call us. Lord of hosts, creator of all things, king, you got it wrong. You made a mistake. Go back and try again. How could they answer God this way? How can we answer God that way? It's like, yeah, I know this Bible says it, but I've got other stuff to take care of. I'm doing just fine, doing the best I can. God's got a problem with that. I don't know what I can do about it. When you see God, you realize I'm a man of unclean lips. You come from a people of unclean lips. You fall on your face as dead. Why would you fall on your face as dead? You ever seen an animal that's about to be killed? A little one? Like a possum? They can't get away. What do they do? They play dead. They're like, this is the only thing. Maybe if they think I'm already dead, they won't kill me. So Isaiah, Ezekiel, John says, I'm going to play dead, and maybe God won't kill me. Because that's what, what else are you going to do when you see God? So with faith, we have to see God the same way. Look what they said. Verse 13, you say, oh, what a weariness. They were supposed to worship God. And they're like, ugh, it's worship time again. Ugh, 
early. Now, fortunately, in the modern age, we don't have problems like that. We're just ready to go, right? You see how we're, this was written, man, what, 2,500 years ago? But couldn't this describe all of us on like a Sunday morning? I'm tired. Ugh, church. Ugh. Worship. Fellowship. Giving. Ugh. Man, it never stops. And we kind of play it off like, ah, you know, that's just life. God doesn't play it off that way. He says, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it. You can't be bothered to worship the Creator. You're too tired. Now, this is not being judgmental of some people. This is saying, here's what people do. Those people, us. We get tired of worshiping God. And we think that's an acceptable excuse. But it's only because we don't see God. They sneer at it. So what do they do to relieve their conscience? They go through the rituals. You know, these are not people who just dismissed God. These are not people who just say, God doesn't exist, I'm not even going to worry about it. What are they doing? They're showing up to the temple. They're bringing sacrifices. They're worshiping. So what's the problem? They're legalists. They're saying, if I do these things, then I'm okay. I've done what I was supposed to do. Why are you on my back? I did what you told me. I brought the sacrifice. I came again and again, over and over, brought all the sacrifices, brought the wave offering, and I brought the incense offering, and I brought the lamb, and I brought the turtle dove. <laughs> Doing what you told me to do, I'm okay. They're legalist. If I do what you tell me to, then I'm okay. But here's what this passage shows us. What's in your heart comes out in your actions. What you believe inside will produce something. Don't take my word for it. Oh, what a weariness. And you bring the stolen. And you sneer at it. And you bring the lame. Why'd they bring the lame? Why'd they bring the stolen? Why'd they bring the broken? Because their hearts didn't care. You see, legalism doesn't make you a better person. We think like, oh, legalism will make you do more right things. Machen says, a low view of the law, which is what they had, always brings legalism into religion, doing the rituals. A high view of the law makes a man a seeker after grace. You see, they said, we're going to do the bare minimum. But it turns out the bare minimum wasn't actually even keeping the law. You find someone who's obsessed with keeping the law, and according to this passage, they're not doing it. A legalist lowers the law. They bring the standard down so they can keep it. And these people, in their heart, they did not care about God. They did not care about pleasing him. And as a result, they broke the law they were pretending to keep. They made a vow. It says, I'll take this perfect lamb. I vow to do it. I promise to do the right thing, God. But sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. Where's the disconnect? Why couldn't he keep the promise? Because in the heart, he never wanted to. If you don't want to do it, you won't do it. And if you're forced to do it, you'll do it half-heartedly. This is what legalism produces. It produces half-hearted effort. It produces people who are just trying, but never really do it. 
And that's a sin. A bad heart equals bad works. If you don't believe God in your heart, you won't believe him in your actions. If you don't love justice in your heart, you won't love it in practice. And it shows up. See, why did God have to speak to them? Because they wouldn't look at what they were doing. Because everyone was doing it. You see, everyone showed up with broken offerings. So when you show up with a broken offering and everyone else shows up with a broken offering, guess what it looks like? looks okay. Because you say, well, it's the same as everybody else's, so there's the standard. Everybody else is doing it right, so I must be doing it right. We've all, this is how I was raised. This is what we've always done. This is the way things are. This is normal. What are these words saying? They're not saying, what does God say? They're saying, what is going to fit in? So God has to come to us and shake us up, break it up, and show us that we're not even keeping what we say we're keeping. See the problem? God is so great that we don't even look at him. Because if we looked at him, we'd fall on our face. So when he forces us to look at him, the response you should be having right now is, oh no, I'm not treating God like God. This is a problem. What now? So God gives the answer. See, the answer is actually embedded behind this passage. When you don't make the cut, when you don't pay the bills, when you don't bring what you're supposed to bring, there's two options here, isn't there? God judges you for your shortcoming, or God produces something that's worth it. You bring the offering, you get rewarded. You bring a false offering, you get punished. Or there's a third way. God brings the offering for you. So in this passage, what's with the deal with all these sacrifices? You offer blind sacrifices? You offer brook? This is kind of weird. Like, when was the last time you saw an animal sacrificed? If you've seen it, it was kind of in a really weird setting, right? Maybe like you know, paganism or some sort of wicked. I, I don't know. It's going to be in a strange, you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to feel like maybe there's sort of spiritual demon worship or some sort of earth worship. So when we read this, we sort of disconnect from it. Why was God so concerned that they bring a physical lamb in the right condition? What's, what's the deal with killing this animal? He was teaching them. For thousands of years, God is saying, you need to learn something. The first thing you need to learn is who I am. Then you need to learn who you are. And then you need to provide something to make up the difference. And so the lamb was to teach them that you can't do it, so someone's going to have to die for you. So when they didn't bring what they were supposed to do, they were breaking down that message. They're like, well, I brought a lamb, but the lamb was broken. And what's that teach people? You don't need a perfect replacement, just good enough. This lamb had a broken leg, which means, like, it doesn't mean a perfect replacement, just a good enough replacement. It could be a little bit damaged, you're fine. So when Jesus shows up, and that's the message that's been taught, what do you expect from Jesus? Good enough. Maybe he's a little broken. Maybe God doesn't really require perfection. Maybe God sort of cuts corners himself. See why God's so concerned? These priests, these leaders, are teaching the people, God's standard is actually not that high, and you can just do whatever you want. And so when God's son comes to earth, he's not actually that great. 
He's just another guy like us. In other words, they're destroying salvation. This is not people just saying, well, we're not doing exactly right. They're saying, do it our way and go to hell. That's the message. Because if you do it this way, man's way, you're not doing it God's way. You see, remember the past before, God loves and God judges? They're your choices. But they're always God's way. The Old Testament sacrifices were training people to trust God for a sacrifice, for a substitute. Man is insufficient, so God steps in. That's who Jesus is. Man can't do it. They've been taught they couldn't do it. But they've been taught that if a lamb who is perfect dies for you, you're okay. But not an animal. How can that replace us? Right, so there must be somebody else coming. Then Jesus shows up, and everyone who had believed this and had done it the right way said, oh, this is what the lamb was about. Man, all those times I sacrificed the perfect lamb to God, that was Jesus. But wait, I always killed that lamb at the end. But that means that Jesus is going to have to die like the lamb, which is exactly what happened. Jesus steps in man's place. It's a perfect standard for God. But man's not perfect. So, God, so Jesus can stand before God in perfection, but also can be killed for man. And so all of our sins go on a perfect lamb, and just like in this passage, they kill the lamb, and all the sins go with it. Isn't that a better way than bringing some broke-down lamb? Isn't that better than doing it your way? Isn't God's way better? God says, look, look, your way is halfway. My way is perfect. Go ahead, trust your way, or trust Jesus. Take your broken lamb, or take the perfect lamb. See, God wants to save. Jesus dying on the cross is all the reason you need that God loves you. How much does God love you? Well, how much was he willing to give up for you? How much does God want to save you? How much did he die to save you? So Jesus shows how much God wants. But, and in this passage we see, God doesn't need us. See, sometimes we think because God gave so much for us that he needs us. But that would make God dependent on us. And then he's not the king anymore. Now he's got to have people helping him. Look what he says here. But now entreat God's favor. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors? The doors to what? The doors to the temple. He says, I wish there was one person who wouldn't let people worship. I have no pleasure, so that you could not kindle fire on my altar in vain. But didn't he tell him to kindle fire? Didn't he tell him to worship? He's saying, yes, but I don't want your half-hearted worship. I don't need it. I wish you would shut the doors and no one do anything rather than do it halfway. God would rather you just keep your mouth shut than praise him in the wrong way. God doesn't need our praise. God doesn't need our church attendance. God doesn't need our faithfulness. He wants it, but he does not need it. Because look what he says. He says, I wish you would shut the door and never talk about me again. But here's what I'm going to do instead. For from the rising of the sun 
even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name, for my name shall be great among the nations, the Lord of hosts. He's telling them and he's telling us, I'm going to get praise. I'm going to get glory. If you don't do it, I'll get it somewhere else. I don't need you to praise me. I will get what's rightfully mine, whether you help me or not. And that humbles us, doesn't it? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we were special. I thought God loves us and sort of just kind of caters to us. No. God offers you an opportunity, a gift to worship him. And if you refuse the gift, God's not going to come crawling to you. He'll say, that's too bad. You've missed out. So I'm going to go somewhere else where people will receive my gift. It's such a warning to us that God gave everything to us, made every way for us, opened every door, but will not force us and will not beg. He offers freely and he expects a free response. So what's our response? How do we respond to this? God is great. We're sinful. Christ provided a way. What's the response? There's only one right answer. You fall like dead at Jesus' feet and say, save me. And Jesus will always say, okay, I will save you. You fall before Jesus, he will save you. You stand proudly before Jesus, he will reject you. That's what worship is. That's what we're doing here. I know it's sort of human and it's sort of weak because we're weak, but that's what we're doing. Christ's sacrifice creates new priests. You see, he's talking about priests in this passage, and a lot of us are like, well, we're not priests, we're not Catholics, first of all, and secondly, we're not sacrificing animals. This is sort of hard to connect with our life. But first Peter says, you also as living stones are being built up. He's talking to the church now. A spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. See, that, what were they offering up here? Physical sacrifices. Priests offer physical sacrifices. We're new priests. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Christ. You see, maybe you're like, well, I can't give God what he deserves. I know. But Jesus can. So this new priesthood doesn't require perfect sacrifices. It requires Jesus. So we come to God as priests, each one of us, individually and corporately, and offer up sacrifices. So what is required? What was required of these people? Was it a sacrifice? No, it was a heart. God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. I don't need your stuff. Did you give money in the offering today? You know, God didn't need that. So why do you want it? so that you could show your heart. Every dollar you give to God is an expression of your heart. Every song you sing fully is an expression of your heart. But lest we think it's only our heart, what was the problem in this passage? God had said, when you worship me, you will do it a certain way. My way. They couldn't come to God and say, you know, God, I, I love you so much, so I brought a horse just to show you how much I love you. And God would say, well, I'm glad your heart's in the right place, but I don't want your, the horse. I told you what I wanted. I wanted a lamb. And you don't get to decide how you worship God. And that's hard for us, isn't it? 
I can worship God anywhere I want. How do you know? Who told you that? I can worship God any way I want. Who told you that? My guess is that you told you that. Every time I hear someone say, I can worship God any way I want, it's like, and you decided that, didn't you? You figured that out, like, well, you know what? I'm my own person. No one can tell me how to worship. I'll bring a broken lamb if I want to. I'll deceive God if I want to. I decide. This is the New Testament. This is the church. This is grace. We can do whatever we want. Jesus died for our sins. That Old Testament stuff, man, there's a lot of rules in the Old Testament. But the New Testament, we just do whatever we want. Did God change? Did Jesus change? Did we change? God decides how he'll be worshipped. In the New Testament, he tells us exactly what he wants. You know he told you how to worship? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable God to God. What is... See, it was easy in the Old Testament. You thought God was harsh in the Old Testament and sort of mean. All he required was a lamb and some food and some money. What's he require in the New Testament? Every single action you take is you showing God how much you love him. Now, we're, you're already saved. You're getting to heaven because of Jesus. You're offering the sacrifices by, because of Jesus, but what sacrifices? Your life. So many people come to church and say, I, here's my offering. They put money in the plate, and they're done. And they think, well, I give money. No. Money only matters as a representation of your life. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't want your money. He wants you. Amen. Amen. Micah 6 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's a high standard, isn't it? Wouldn't it be easier to just write a check? It's like, can't you just tell us how much money we have to give? See, that's what the prosperity gospel does. You want some? Here's how much money you must give. Here's how many days you must serve. Here's how many times you have to go to church. That's easy. That's not what God wants. He says, do justice all the time, love kindness all the time, and walk humbly all the time. And that's it. That's all you have to do. In other words, give your whole body a living sacrifice. But he's even more specific than that. You see, there's a principle in the New Testament, and that principle tells us what to do on Sunday mornings. It tells us how to decide what we do as a body. Did you think that maybe the pastor just came up with it? Probably. Some of you thought that. Maybe you still do. What's the reasoning behind this? How are we following God's instruction? Is it random? Is it tradition? Where's the principle? The principle is that God has actually told us in the New Testament what he wants. Here are two specific examples. Hebrews 13. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice, see the same language, of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. If you want to worship God, God says, you must sing. You must sing. You can say, well, I'm just worshiping God in my heart. Okay, great. But now are you going to obey God? God tells you to sing. Now, you can bring a broken sacrifice, or you can bring God's sacrifice. You can have a heart that you think is good, 
but doesn't produce good action, or you can have a heart that is good and does produce good action. As God has taught us, people that love God vocally praise God. And if that's true, then the opposite is true. People that don't vocally praise God don't love God. Can't have it both ways. How have we defiled you, God? Well, you won't sing. I don't know. I don't really watch people during the service. So I'm not really talking to anybody specifically, but if it's, not, if it's you, you probably feel it right now. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. If you want to offer a sacrifice on God's standards, you will praise God with your lips. That's the standard. I don't enforce it. I don't make it. The church doesn't enforce it, and the church doesn't make it, but God does. So check your heart, as John Chris would say. You can check it by your actions, or you can check it by inspection. Vocal praise and give continues, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. You want to please God with your sacrifice? Share. Give. Now, what's it mean, give? I think you know what it means. Share. What is sharing? It's letting somebody else have something that you have to help them. What do you have that someone else needs? That's what God wants. How do I please God? How do I do the right thing? How do I not bring a broken sacrifice to the great king? Look around, find out what people need, and help them. And if you're not doing that, you're not worshiping God. God knows, and God knows your heart. You live a life that seeks God because your heart seeks God. And if your heart doesn't seek God, you're under judgment. And the only answer is to flee, fall down before Christ. But for those of us who are Christians, this is telling us how to express our worship. But it's saying to us, you're either all in or not. There's a story of a tightrope walker. I think it's a true story, but, you know, maybe not. It's a good story either way. Have you ever seen a tightrope walker? I, don't, I really don't understand it. I, just, I, I physically don't understand it. I'm afraid of heights, too, so that probably doesn't help. But there's a famous tightrope walker, and I believe he lived in Europe, and he was renowned for his feats. He was so good that he would blindfold himself and walk across the rope. Then he said, let's take a notch low. And he would take a wheelbarrow, blindfold himself, and walk the wheelbarrow on a tightrope. One American promoter heard about this, and he said, that's, that's not true. That, that can't be true. That's a, you know, salesmanship, and you always boost your image. He's like, it can't be true. This guy's just making up stuff. So the promoter knows how to make money. He says, I'll bring you over to America. So you can do it for us. He goes, but not just that. I want to show that it's going to be tough. So let's do it over Niagara Falls. Let's, let's raise the stakes here. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you don't want to fall in. You don't want to fall in. So they do it. So the promoter sets it up, has a tightrope across it. The man shows up. The promoter says, I don't think you can do this, so don't die. But like a good American, he says, but I'll make money off of it while it happens. Sorry, that was another sermon. <sighs> Tightrope workers, the promoter says, I don't think you can do it. I just don't believe you. 
So tightrope walker gets up there, he blindfolds himself, he gets the wheelbarrow, and he walks across. And he turns around, he comes back. Crowd's amazed, promoter's amazed. He's like, you did it. And the tightrope walker says, do you believe I can cross it? Promoter says, yeah, I believe it. And the walker says, do you believe that I can cross it with the wheelbarrow? And the promoter says, yes, I just saw you, I believe you. Tightrope walker says, do you believe that I can do it? Promoter's like, yes, I just saw you do it. I told you I saw you do it. I believe you can do it. How can I not believe it? I saw it with my own eyes. I believe you can walk across. And the tightrope walker said, okay, get in the wheelbarrow. Do you believe God or do you not believe God? You can obey God or not. You can say it with your mouth, but you either get in the wheelbarrow and follow God all the way across Niagara Falls or you don't believe him. See what Christ does? He makes it easy for us. He says, I'll do all the work. I'll make the way. I'll provide the power. I'll provide the sacrifice. You just have to believe. It's all Christ asks from you, is everything. And he'll make it work. Let's pray.